0: Linda. can I please have your attention? You Greetings dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um very excited today for a first-time guest. Um uh as many people know, I like uh I like arguing with libertarians and um, but and I, I love dearly uh Catherine Mango Ward, but we are literally incapable of having a conversation on here without it boiling back down to whether we should legalize heroin. So I figured I'd take a stab with somebody else, a writer I'm a big fan of, first-time guest. Um, and she's got a great piece. Uh it's the current cover story of uh Reason magazine, and it's called Storks Don't Take Orders from the State. Uh, subhead is Falling Birth Rates, Pronatalist Policies, and the Limits of Population Control by Elizabeth Nolan Brown. Uh, Ms. Brown, welcome to The Remnant.
1: Hi, excited to be here. Thanks.
0: So, um, you didn't write a book, but, um, I mean, maybe you did <laughs> about something else. But uh, but what I always ask uh, um, book authors, the first question, just to give them a shot, is, what's your book about? So, like, why don't we do it this way? What's your article about? Can you just sort of lay it out? For the average informed reader about like the basic thesis and the and the argument, and then we'll get into it.
1: Yeah, uh, it's about falling fertility rates around the world and sort of um, the the problems that are associated with with that, and also a lot of the popular explanations for why they might be falling. Uh, and then sort of deconstructing a lot of those popular explanations that are, um, you know, whether they're coming from the left or the right. There's not a lot of data to back up sort of the pet narratives about why fertility rates are falling. So I do a lot of sort of deconstructing these popular narratives about why this is happening, and then kind of at the end sort of suggesting some things that maybe we can do instead.
0: So um, one of the things we might... We'll see where we disagree, but we might disagree a little bit about whether it's a problem or not, um, falling birth rates. Um, although I'm, I'm very sympathetic to some of your, your points about it, but one of the things I liked about it, about the piece is whether you think falling birth rates are a huge problem, a minor problem, um, a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it's really friggin' obvious if you actually start paying attention to this stuff that it's complicated. Yeah. Right. And like, this is one of these things where, um, I think one of the things that is, is screwing up conservatism as it's so called these days is forgetting that, that social engineering is hard. Right. I mean, there's like the, the Hayek knowledge problem thing is real and it's not just real for progressives. It's real for planners, regardless of the party in there. And it's just, It's just hard. Right. It's just complicated. And people have tried. So can you walk through a little bit about the efforts that various states have made to try to goose um, uh, fertility rates?
1: Yeah. And I'll just say, too, that, you know, that was kind of one of my favorite things about writing this piece was I didn't go in, as I usually do with a lot of my features, with, with a strong opinion or a strong preconceived argument um, I don't necessarily think that folly fertility rates are a reason to panic but I definitely don't you know think they're a good thing either uh, so and I didn't have any sort of strong thesis going in about about the why or anything like that so it was just really interesting to sort of see where different data and research took me and, and sort of just sort of follow where that went without you know without trying to arrive at any particular con- conclusion um, and and in what you know what I found then was that like you said, this is hard and it doesn't lend itself to any sort of, uh, pat narratives either from, from the left, like, you know, we need more, we need more parental leave. We need more, you know, government subsidy of childcare and that sort of stuff. Or from the right, which was, you know, stuff like, oh, well, you know, we're just not valuing, you know, uh, motherhood enough or it's working women or, you know, we need to try these pronatalist policies. Uh, so that was a big part of it was looking at pronatalist policies around the world. Things like, um, I mean that that can be kind of a broad range of things. That can be everything from paying people directly to have kids or to have more than one or two or three kids. It can be you know child tax credits. It can be um, subsidies for childcare. Singapore has tried a a, a lot of things, including like giving um, grandparents subsidies to move near their their grandchildren. So hopefully, you know, I guess theoretically they could babysit or, um, giving priority because a lot of housing in in Singapore is, is government run. So giving priority to grandparents to live near their kids or, um, to people who have a certain amount of kids get better housing options or get better placement in schools. So there's just been this, this wide variety of things and, and more, um, kind of things like in Russia, there's like a day or two where people get off work and they're like supposed to go procreate, um, you know there's there's like pr campaigns and things like that but a lot of the things that that have been tried have been um have been economic which, which you know makes sense um but the the gist of it is that pretty much around the world anywhere that these pronatalist policies have been tried they have failed to really produce any either any results or at least any results that are uh, worth writing home about you know nothing that's going to actually reverse Population decline in some of these countries, or, or make a big difference. Um, you know, just for for instance, one of the things I talked about was South Korea has spent more than 200 billion subsidizing childcare and parental leave over the past uh, decade and a half, and yet their fertility rate, which is one of the lowest in the world, if, if not the lowest, uh, fell from 1.1 in 2006 to 0.81 last year or in 2021. Um, Singapore, like I said, has done a ton of different things, including now. They recently raised the the bonus for having a second baby uh, to eight thousand dollars, and for every child thereafter, you get ten thousand dollars. That's in addition to these things like housing subsidies and, and all sorts of other things. Um, their their fertility rates fallen from one point eight three in the in nineteen ninety down to one point one or one point two over the past two years. So you see that again and again um, at, at, in all of these countries where you look at like all of these were policies, including then you know also things like. The Nordic countries, where fertility, you know, where they have very generous uh, social welfare policies, and and they all have continued to have plummeting fertility rates um, on par with or lower than in countries like the U.S. That you know people complain about having less generous uh, social safety nets in that regard. So it's just it's it's really not worth. And, and just for the record, because I know this is maybe not common knowledge, um, replacement fertility is considered two point one. So you know your average woman would have two point one children, um, and and most countries around the world, especially, uh, especially like more, more industrialized and more prosperous countries are, are below that. The United States, um, in 2021 was at 1.66.
0: Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, just long time listeners know, I, I got my start in Washington working for Ben Wattenberg, who was sort of a self-taught demographer, wrote a book called the birth dearth, where he was talking about how his big argument was arguing with people like Paul Ehrlich about how the population bomb thesis was wrong. in fact, the real problem with looking ahead is going to be declining fertility rates, not exploding fertility rates, which was treated as crazy talk in the seventies. Right. I mean, everyone was talking about how overpopulation was the the curse of humanity. Um, And just for people who don't know, the reason why the TFR, the total fertility rate needs to be 2.1 is you need two kids to replace your the The mother and the father, in terms of population numbers, and it needs to be just a little extra, like a like a mounding teaspoon, not rather than an even teaspoon, because some people just don't have kids, and so it's it's just catching up. So, like technically, if every single person had two kids, that would be fine, but you need to be two point one or so, or and in some countries, the total fertility rate needs to be above two point one because of so many deaths from disease or whatever. Um, so. Again, one of the things that, that's also useful about this is I, I, I often quote um, Seymour Martin Lipset, who used to say, if you only know one country, you don't know any countries. Because unless you understand what what makes your country different than other countries or the same as other countries, you really don't know. You think everything is unique to your own country. And it turns out that a um, lot of different cultures, a lot of different societies with a lot of different uh uh constitutional governing models, economic models, they're all trying to do this, and it's hard everywhere. Um and um so one so my understanding is that like if you look at the hungry stuff, uh, which a lot of my friends and former friends on the right uh make a bigger deal out of than I think the facts support. Um one thing that it does seem is successful tentatively is the ability of the state to accelerate, right? If like the, the, the desired number of births you can get people, if, if someone wants to have three babies and you can have government pronatalist policies, that'll have them have their third baby earlier than they otherwise would have, right? It moves up births. Um, but that's different than actually creating more births than than people want it.
1: Yeah, there's there's actually that's that's another finding. A lot of these studies that have have shown that some sort of government interventions have had the have had the ability to change the timing of of births, but not necessarily the the total number of births, which seems like a lot of trouble for 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 not a lot of a uh, return. But yeah, the hungry thing is interesting. I mean, a lot of these just that's what I thought was so interesting too is that it's not just different economic systems or just political systems, but such vastly different cultures. Countries with such vastly different cultures are experiencing this. And that really goes, um, undercuts a lot of these these arguments, too, from, again, from the left and the right about about what's driving this. Because you'll have people talk about like, oh, you know, it's because we don't, you know, we're not traditionalist enough. We have such a, a decadent liberal culture or whatever. But then you look at Hungary and, you know, countries like Hungary and they've got the same birth rates as the United States does. Or you look at people talking about, well, it's because Americans are too invested in their kids, you know, the safetyism, the too much helicopter parenting, all of things like that. And you look at a country like, say, France, which is, you know, known as sort of the anti-helicopter parenting country. And, and there's a slightly above the United States, but it's, it's still below replacement fertility. So just, I mean, anytime you kind of pick one of these explanations, you can find all sorts of countries around the world that have a vastly different culture than we do here. When it comes to that particular facet of, of, you know, parenting or whatever, and and find that they're not faring any better.
0: The one place where I, well, I shouldn't say the one place. Um, one of the places where I, I push back a little bit on the. Well, let me start here. I think the cover kind of gets it wrong, right? It's a great cover. If I was the editor of reason, I'd probably make it the cover, too. So I'm not it's not some searing indictment, but it's got this. Um, picture of a stork with, um, a gun to its head and, you know, and the title is don't, storks don't take orders from the state. Right. But like, um, there's very little in the piece looking at countries where they are forcing anybody to have babies, right? It's more like they are trying their damnedest to incentivize people to have more babies and it's not working. So it's, it's, it actually, the better title it seems to me would be storks don't take bribes and have a dude with a big wad of cash. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, um, and then, um, so like take that Catherine. <laughs> <thing you would. laughs> I
1: do. I love, I also, I didn't, you know, I obviously did not come up with the cover or thing. That was our art director, Joanna Andreessen. And I think, I think Catherine came up with the uh, headline, but I, I love them. They're just very like, you know, gripping, um, visually. I think it would, I think it would have worked with the bribes thing too. Actually, you're right.
0: Yeah, I mean, but and so then, the second thing is, if we're talking about like, so I my point is, totally with you, on the implication of the cover, which is state violence to force people to have more babies than they want or fewer babies than they want is grotesque. Yeah, right. Forced abortions are horrible, and you, and the thing is, you can be totally pro-choice and totally atheistic and still think forced abortions are horrible. And forced births are horrible.
1: Right. Government coercion on either sides. No good. Yeah.
0: You can get into a theological thing where like the forced birth is like not as evil as the forced abortion. But like, I don't have to get into that argument. My point is is that the state should not be getting into the business of forcing women, forcing people to have babies or not have babies that they want to have. But um, there's an implication in here because like you you cite this study that says... um, you know, efforts would get, I don't know, I should have highlighted it for me, but it's basically that you can get a 10 to 20% boost in fertility, but it would cost like $250 billion a year to follow it through. Now, is that really such a, I mean, like, I I would rather spend $250 billion on a hundred percent boost of fertility, you know, but like, Of all the things that the government spends its money on, replenishing the population um, to, you know, again, forget all the mystic cords of memory, civilization stuff, and just think about, like, paying for entitlements, right? Uh, Incentivizing people to have more babies where the incentives make it worth it to them to have more babies as a matter of choice. That seems like a pretty good use of money compared to a lot of other things that the government... What is wrong with incentivizing Let's just say we, we could figure out how we could figure out how to make it work. What's wrong with doing it?
1: I would say, so yeah, the study you're talking about, they found um, it was something published in 2017 in the journal of economic perspectives. They found one extra percentage point of GDP spending on early childhood education and childcare programs was associated with 0.2 extra children per woman. Um, I, you know, I, obviously, yeah, how you're going to feel about that is going gonna, is gonna to depend on a lot of things. And, you know, I think your your average libertarian would probably say, you know, it's, it's not worth it because um, even if you think that the outcome is good, the, the government getting involved there is going to create all sorts of perverse incentives that make, you know, childcare more expensive and you run into all the problems with government-managed healthcare is now, you know, applied to the childcare sector, et cetera, et cetera. It'll drive other places out of business. It might actually end up making childcare more expensive. So I think you have, you have, for libertarians, at least you have those concerns that this is going to backfire and, and, um, just, you know, not work in terms of actually making childcare better or, or, you know, less expensive for people. Um, I think, you know, for some people on, on the left, especially, but now on, on the right too, that's, that's not a concern. And so, yeah, you, you might view this study differently, but I would also caution that we don't know. I mean, this is pretty theoretical. And, uh, I don't think we, like, in terms of what would happen, the more you spend, I don't think we can necessarily say that because even if this, that model works out and you spend an extra 250 billion a year on child care, then you get a point two extra children. So, you know, um, would that mean that if you spend an extra 500 billion, then you get, you know, a point four extra, like, could you, could it continue on exponentially? And I don't think that it necessarily follows that it could.
0: No, I agree with that. I, I just mean, theoretically, right. I mean, cause I agree with you, like there are all sorts of things that if the government could do them cheaply and effectively, it's a different argument than if the government could do it badly and really expensively. (laughs) Uh, I mean, mean, like we, I I understand like there's a, there's a, there's always a, there's always sort of like a, 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 a first mover problem with, with libertarians. Again, I'm very sympathetic to, which is that, even if the government could do X, it shouldn't be in the business of doing X, right? But there are a lot of people who think, rightly or wrongly, that we're not making enough babies in this country, and um, that parents have a really hard time dealing with the costs of raising kids. And so there, like my friend R- Ramesh Panuru would always make the point is that like society is counting on families to do a lot of work for the greater good of society and not getting compensated for it, right? It's that, that, a lot of out-of-pocket expense. Now, his argument would be that it's still worth having kids and you have other obligations, blah, 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 blah. But if you're going to have a family, if you're going to have a, a policy that is not, strictly speaking, limited and neutral or minicrist or whatever, leaning on the side of helping families and helping people who have babies is not necessarily bad public policy. And I'm, I'm still sympathetic to that. But let's put aside the question of whether it can be done for just two seconds, because I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the it's way too complicated to be glib and simplistic about this the way a lot of people are. But um, what's wrong with doing it in theory? What's wrong with goosing the fertility weight if it's not coercive? If it's bribery, not gunpoint?
1: I think, obviously, a lot of people will disagree. The libertarian argument is just that this is outside of the the proper scope of government, that the government shouldn't be in the business of subsidizing any particular social arrangements, uh, even if, you know, my, you know, obviously having some children exist is, is necessary for the uh, you know propagation of the species, but um we're we're not at, at a dire point left where like literally we're about to just, you know, go extinct. I don't know, maybe then that would change the calculation. But I think, you know, it, it, it's not the proper role of government to say we need to be boosting our birth rates to a certain to a certain rate, um, because you know, we're there are other things we can do. And that's one of the things I talk about in this piece too. Like everyone is sort of upset when we talk about people aren't having more babies. I mean, obviously there are some, um, conservatives mostly who are just like, you know, it'd be good for like, it's, we think it's good for people to have children. We think it's not independent of any sort of societal outcomes. We think it's good. And, it's, you know, people should be doing it just because, but a lot of times when you talk about this, the worries are, you know, if we don't have more babies, we're going to have population stagnation or decline. And with that, we have a lot of trouble, you know, funding things like in the U.S., social security and Medicare, um, or just, you know, in pension programs in general across the, across the board. Um, we have trouble with, you know, labor shortages. We have trouble with all of these things that come with an aging population or, or less population. Um, and so one of the things, you know, that that I talk about in here and I I talk to, um, some, some people, some academics about too, is just the idea that we should stop obsessing over birth rates being the only way to fix that, right? Like if we're worried about the problems of population decline, let's worry, address those problems directly instead of saying, well, we got to get more babies because even if we get, more babies, even if we start bringing up birth rates. Like r- right now, we're already facing a huge grain population. We're already going to have a lot of these labor shortages or these, you know, um, shifts in, in labor sectors because of the huge baby boom uh, population getting older and because of already we have, you know, Falling fertility rates, we're already going to have, we already do have all these um, problems with, you know, social security and Medicare. So we're going to have to address these things anyways. And why don't we start just focusing on fixing problems like those, you know, reallocating the way we, we, uh, not, you know, we're not, can't reallocate from the top down, but I'm saying, you know, encouraging people to go into different labor sectors, doing different things, fixing our pensions, things like that, so that we could be dealing with these actual problems instead of just trying to boost birth rates as a sort of a, a, you know, proxy solution to population decline.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get that and I'm sympathetic to some of it at the same time we started, you know, you started a minute ago talking about how libertarians don't think we should be subsidizing one form of lifestyle over another. It seems to me the government's just in the business.
1: Yeah. But we want to get him out of that,
0: too. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But so, like, when you say focus on these other things, well, these other things violate that principle, too, right? So at some point... Well,
1: not if we're we're fixing, uh, you know, fixing Medicare by doing
0: less of it, then. Right, yeah. right. No, look, I mean, let me put it this way. Like, I am not pro-evil dictator. I don't want an evil dictator. Uh, but if you were... Or even a benign dictator, right? It, like, If America had a Lee Kuan Yew, you can make a really strong argument that if you didn't care about democracy and you didn't care about human dignity and 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 decency and all these kinds of things, that we would go sort of full Logan's Run on old people, right? Uh, because old people are basically just a drain on societal resources. Now we can argue about when that becomes true. Is it at age seventy? Is it at age eighty? Um, uh, whatever. But kids are actually a vital resource for society, and we spend trillions on taking care of old people in this country. And again, I'm not actually advocating that we stop doing that. I think we could do it better. But if you had to sort of, if you were coming at this from scratch, if we brought in some grand vizier from Alpha Centauri and said, okay, how should we be running this place? We would probably spend a lot more money raising healthy, smart, good kids, and a lot less money warehousing old people in old age age homes who don't contribute much. And it just seems to me that, like, you, you can sort of acknowledge, you can acknowledge that, and I I literally feel like my pain collar will activate when I say this, but children are the future, (laughs) Um, um, that it's it's a legitimate thing to be concerned about, right? Whether, whether there's a legitimate way to deal with it, which I think you're right, is probably at the very best, at the very best going to be underwhelming. Um, um, it's a legitimate thing to care about because like the world is a better place with a lot of kids in it. I think that's a fair thing to say.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's definitely a legitimate thing to care about. And I think that there's lots of little tweaks that, you know, this is one thing we talk about. There are lots of little tweaks that might make a difference at the margins, either by, you know, encouraging small, you know, encouraging some individual, some per- small percentage of individuals to have more kids or to have kids that wouldn't have otherwise or making life easier for parents. And I'm not saying that, all of these things are bad. I mean, a lot of times, you know, we, fo- we focus too on things that aren't necessarily things that the government could do, just like, um, you know, there's there's some evidence that perhaps a lot of uh, telecommuting during the pandemic raised birth rates because there was a slight bump up in birth rates again um, in 2021. Uh, we don't know if that continued last year or this year yet. Um, and also there's some Debate over whether or not that that really was was the cause of it or not, but I think it's it's plausible, right? So, like you know, having more flexible work hours definitely. I, I know a lot of a lot of families who where the parents worked from home were a lot of the ones having babies during the pandemic because it, it you know made more sense. So, you know, there's there's tons of little things that we can do that I think could could make a difference at the margins. And I'm not saying that those things aren't worth doing um, for sure. I just think. Yeah, just sort of looking at it big picture, I think the the main thing I wanted to stress was that like even if some of these things are worth doing and, and, and they might make a difference at the margins, none of them is a panacea or not even altogether are they really going to effectively do much, which is why, as much as, you know, focus on other problems is not like very satisfying advice for other people, I think it's it's the most realistic advice. It's the most, you know, accepting the limits of, of what we can do in terms of changing social policy.
0: Yeah. See that, and that's what I'm sympathetic with. I mean, it seems to me that there's a lot of stuff and I mean, reason has spent a half century writing about a lot of them. There are a lot of things that people turn into grand philosophical abstract constructs about the role of the state. And then when you look under the hood, just even a little bit, you realize that these highfalutin marquee concepts are really just excuses for rewarding your friends and for graft or, or benefit or, or preferencing one bureaucracy or constituency over another, you know, I mean like family farm and, and I, I like family farms. I, I'm not trying to, there are real family farms out there, but a lot of the family farm stuff is, is fig leaf stuff for big agribusiness and big agricultural subsidies. And um, most of the Ameri- buy by American stuff that you hear from Biden, when you hear from Trump is really just like, protectionism for favorite industries and and big donors and not some radical new conception of the role of the state or any of that kind of stuff it's the political theory is just the spoonful of sugar to make the the graft go down and i think that the, this kind of thing is very susceptible to that
1: yeah i i i agree <laughs> Sorry, that's all i got there <laughs>
0: So the thing I tell you, one of the things that actually because I mean, I, I follow this stuff quite a bit, but um, I don't know how I missed this before. I did not realize that um, the number of women, you know, you make this point about how the childless woman is sort of the poster woman for this problem, and that number hasn't really Changed, right? It's like the, the it, I mean, it, it dipped up and down a little bit, but it's back to where it was a while ago. It's not. It's it's not the driving force of these sort of spinster, childless women that um get sort of demonized. Uh, and I'm using spinster in air quotes. Um, um, uh, that numbers remain kind of constant, which I think is kind of fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was like just one of these these many things that I found in researching this. That again goes against a lot of popular narratives, which which are very, very down on this, you know, this uh, mythological or not mythological, but you know, this, this stereotype of this selfish a childless woman who's just like, I'm, you know, I'm too busy with my career or with just like having lots of fun or whatever to have kids and I don't care about, you know, anything. Um, you, you have a lot of blame put on put on this, you know, alleged woman. You just you have a lot of blame put on or just couples that they say, like, you know, like there's just not enough couples that are that are choosing to have kids. And and obviously, I mean, there are a lot of people that are that are choosing not to have kids. When when you look at surveys of the reasons why people don't have kids. Um. In, in most of them, either at the top or near the top, is people saying, I just don't want to. So it turns out, you know, like when you give people the, the technological means to avoid child, you know, avoid having children and, and we loosen cultural sort of constraints saying that everyone must have children, some higher percentage of people is going to choose not to have children. But as you said, um there's there's not we're not experiencing like epidemic levels of, of childlessness. Um, we're we're Relatively on par with trends going back a, a century or more, and um, and we're lower than we were, I think, in the, in the 90s and, and and maybe the 80s. Yeah, like you said, it, there was a there was an increase, and then there was or there was a dip, and then there was an increase. And now it, it dipped again, so we're we're not at a particularly high rate of childlessness. Um, they found that you know the the bulk of this fertility rate decline in the United States, at least, is not being driven by childless women or you know childless couples but by people who have children having less kids um there's way more people now than in the than in, even in the 1970s uh, that are having one or two children and there's way less people that are having four or more oddly the number that i've had three children is same, like the exact same so that's that's a constant but um but yeah it, it's it's driven by smaller families in general but not necessarily by people having zero children and and one other thing that I just real quick I thought was interesting too is that there's actually there's been a, a rebound too in like highly educated women like they have more kids now than they were having in the, in the nineties and early two thousands even so there's some you know rebound there too
0: yeah I, and I, I I have a theory about that that doesn't reflect well either on me or 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 a lot of people if it's if if I'm right which is let's hear it I I, I think the that it comes and goes in society, but like the transformation of at the high end um, of kids into Veblen goods, where you are um, showing off how much money you can pour into these kids um, is kind of um, like when it's a status symbol to have kids, some percentage of people have kids that otherwise wouldn't when it's not a status symbol, they don't. And I think that like, if you go back over the last 50 years, the, the status um, of of professional, high achieving professional woman motherhood has gone up and down. And I think at the, again, it doesn't explain as an individual human beings decision-making, but when you're talking about large numbers, I think it's, it's a part of the explanation about, you know, because I mean, people do respond to incentives i think one of the mistakes that a lot of people on the right and on the left in different ways have always made is that they think that the only incentives people respond to are financial incentives when in fact financial incentives are often as this piece shows sometimes the least effective um uh incentives there are all sorts of other things about like status and and whatnot that 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 drive human beings because we're status-seeking creatures. Along
1: those lines too, you know, there's this, there's this idea that's very popular out there right now that part of why people aren't having kids or having more kids is because it takes so much, not necessarily financially, although, you know, that's part of it, but it takes so much to raise a kid today, you know, like it's so much tougher because you're expected to do all these things. You're expected to spend more time with them. You're expected to have them involved in these activities. You're expected to, you know, make sure that they're... Getting into the right preschools so that they can get into, the, you know, and so on and so on. You're expected to just just put so much more uh, investment in in each child than than you were a long time ago. Um, but I, I I don't necessarily find that convincing. Not because I don't think that that is true, but I don't think that it, I think it kind of goes. It could go the other way, right? This this parental investment, like people could are putting more effort into each child because they are having less children, not the other way around. And also. I think a lot of this effort is is unnecessary, right? It, it is status seeking or it is just sort of um, a weird pressure that like middle and upper classes have, have put on themselves that is not actually, you know, required in order to raise healthy, well-adjusted, good children. This is like so many things that we do. I mean, yeah.
0: I think that's right. I mean, like, I mean, and you, you have somewhere in the piece, you point out that like um, middle and lower income families don't stress out about having kids the way um, higher income mm-hmm. families do. And yeah. I think that that's, it's, you know, we haven't even talked about immigration, but one of the things I like about immigration is that it's how we import people with healthy worldviews into this country because the sort of the, 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 the top quintile, whether it's on the right or the left are so friggin' neurotic and so up in their own heads that they've kind of lost sight about, like the important things in life for like, you know, friends, family, kids, you know, uh, uh, you know, work that you like and that kind of thing. And sometimes it turns out that like immigrants who come here and know the alternatives say, hey, I can get all that here in a way I couldn't, you know, back in El Salvador or wherever. Um, And that's it's, you know, like I'm reading this Patrick Deneen book and he's talking about how the masses have better morals and and they're better, they're they have better priorities. And I'm like, yeah, the, the most traditionalist people we have in this country are the ones we import. Um, and there's something to be said for that, but it's a different argument from now. So at the same time, so I, I, again, I, we, I keep coming back to this. It's, it's a complicated thing to me. It's very much like the question of why are Jews liberal? Um, I, this is my sort of standard ex. My standard illustration of how to explain an overdetermined phenomenon, um, Jews are liberal because Jews for a thousand years were more urban than rural. Jews are liberal because they've, educa- they've, they've overeducated their kids with the death. Jews are more liberal because th- as a s- sort of a Darwinian social adaption, uh, they always saw the centralized government as their protector. Jews are liberal because the Democrats were the first to recognize Israel. Jews are liberal for a hundred, like for 10 different reasons, right? 15 different reasons. And for some Jews, it's all explanatory. Like they just, they loved FDR. Their grandparents loved FDR and they always stayed that way. And for others, it's a little of this and a little of that and whatever. And like, you can't have a phenomenon where the entire planet sees fertility rates dropping and not, with every kind of government under the sun and every kind of culture under the sun, literally and say, Oh, I have my one explanation for why this is so.
1: And pretty much anywhere where you have people who have the needs to control and limit their, their reproductive capacity, you, you have it happening, which is, yeah.
0: But at the same time, like, and, and this is maybe me arguing that the plural of anecdote is data. I know a lot of women, a lot of couples, uh, who wanted more kids, uh, fertility treatments, extremely expensive, uh, and it's more expensive, you know, cause, because one of the, one of the, I think you'd agree, one of the explanations that has to be part of it. I mean, no one, I don't think it's disputable is that women delaying first child, is part of it because that means there's the window of years where they can have kids is shorter is, 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 is narrower. Um, uh, and so a lot of women who go to fertility, they do it because they're at the tail end of their reproductive years. And, um, there are lots of women who would like to have more kids than they had. And that seems to me, whether it's a role of the state or, or just better insurance policies or or better public information, you know, like there were I, I think I, I know you don't like scapegoating the feminists necessarily, but the signal, the messaging that you got in the 70s and 80s of you can have it all, and there are no trade-offs between career and, and motherhood just wasn't true. There really is a biological clock. And like you can tinker with it a little and we're getting better at it. But when they were saying that, this idea that you can just start planning to have kids when you're 35 and you've made executive vice president just wasn't true. And Depends. I think there are a lot of, I know a, I'm currently yeah. pregnant
1: with my second child. I'm 40 Model years top. old. Um, I had my first one at, at 39 and I have, uh, had, had zero problem
0: getting pregnant. And so, um, But no, again, law of large numbers, obviously. But I know a lot of people like like, that. And
1: actually, this is just a weird, you know, tidbit. But like, I look at my aunts, I was doing a lot of ancestry research a couple of years ago. And a lot of my my relatives, uh, my ancestors, started having kids in their 20s, but had kids through their early 40s. Um, Like, there, there is a misconception that if you start in your in your 30s and 40s that you're not going to be able to get pregnant or you know that that everyone is going to have trouble um, it does take longer but but you know like a lot of people will say like oh you have half as much chance of getting pregnant in a given month but that still means that within a year like your average person will be able to but you know so just i've got i got to say that cuz i think that there's there's some misconception about how hard it is but um but yes you're right like obviously people who are going to start later are not going to be able you know I'm not going to be able to have five kids uh, so, um, I think, you know, I don't, I don't want five kids either to, to be clear, but I, you know, there, there's obviously that there are women are having children later, especially starting with the millennial generation. Um, they, they are playing some catch up later in life. Like people are having more kids later. Like the, the biggest, there's been a massive drop in teen pregnancies, um, a smaller drop in people in their twenties and early thirties having pregnancies. And then, people in their late or or maybe just in their twenties and then people in their thirties and forties and pregnancies has, has really increased. But still, even yet you start later, you're not going to be able to have as many. So.
0: Yeah. And I I think like, that's a, that's one of the little things that society could figure out how to do, or at least communicate better. Right. And I
1: think we, we do put too much pressure on, um, People to to not have kids young, right? I mean, we don't want people having kids. We, you know, I think the, the massive drop in teen pregnancies, great. That's that's, an, I think, indisputable good thing. Um, for people who do want to have kids in their in their early twenties or even anytime in their twenties, you know, there is there is a bit of a cultural message that that's weird. You know, we tell people like, oh, you know, you should you know figure out figure out your uh you know yourself first, your career first, blah blah blah, and wait. And I think we'd be better not to do that. Um, obviously, there are lots of reasons why many people are going to wait either because they want to or because they just haven't found the right person or you know, various things. But um, I think we do put too much too much cash in in waiting until a certain time, and that's not necessarily beneficial either.
0: yeah, I mean, like as I'm a big believer um, I think I think the philosopher's name is l a. Paul, but I learned about it from um Russ Roberts. It's called the Vampire Problem, which is that, like, the most important decisions in life at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to do a rational calculation about pros and cons. Right. It's like, um, because it's like with the vampire thing. And I, and the reason I, the reason I don't like the vampire problem as a, as, as the thought experiment is because vampires are literally demonic and we shouldn't think about that. Too. But just for the sake of argument, the point, the point of the vampire problem is, is that, if you describe being a vampire to somebody who's not a vampire, they're like, I don't want to do that. I you know, I don't want to drink blood and only live at night and, um, and have to hunt human beings. But then the second you become a vampire, you're like, this is pretty awesome. Right. And you, and there's just some things that's like jumping in the pool. You are just not going to know until you do it. Right. And the, that's marriage. That's motherhood. That's fatherhood. It's all that stuff. Right. And like the most important things in life, you, you, you can't sit with the slide rule or a clipboard and do the math and figure out whether you should do it or whether it'll make you happy until you try.
1: We give a lot of bad messages, I think to people, parents in general too. Um, I, I'm maybe I, I'm kind of in the midst of writing something about this to so like a more personal essay um, about this, about just how, you know, when, when, when I first got pregnant, it's like everybody, ostensibly people like people who say they love parenting, essentially people who want to have convince people to have more kids. So many people come to you and go, Oh, your life is over. You're never gonna sleep again. Like people give you these these terrible messages and just so much of of um especially in the media, like writing about parenthood these days is just like about what a what a hellscape life is for for parents and for mothers especially and how much harder it is than people talked about. I mean, I understand why that cultural message um gets a lot of traction these days because, you know, for so long I think we've we went too far the other way. So there's some, you know, partly that I think also just stories that are like, I became a parent. That's great. Are not as clickable as, as you know, stories about how nobody told me it was going to be this hard. But, um, but when it comes to both, both media messages and just the messages you hear from the people around you or just strangers on the internet are, are so bizarre. And they, they, they're, not honestly like i do know a lot of people who are like i'm kind of scared to have kids because everyone who talks about it is like oh well it'll bring you joy but you'll hate your life and i'm like we need to you know <laughs> we need to not have that be the main message you're hearing from parents um so I'll i'll say and uh, to do my small part here like like i said like i had my first son in, in 2021 um and my husband and i are are so so happy right now and so untappier than we've ever been, and not in just the like, oh, we have like a general sense of joy, but our day to day lives are miserable way. But like you know, like our day to day lives are are better now than they've ever been. So I think that's that's possible. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, like I'm I, I, just like I, I, at the dispatch. I think we have the most pro maternity maternity parental leave policies of any business I know in DC, and it's basically Steve and I are like just very pro baby. We like babies, and we think babies are good, and you know, I always tell we have a bunch of it's just the babies are coming out like out of a howitzer at the dispatch these days. And uh, um, a
1: reason too. We've had like a lot of a lot of people have babies in the past two years. And the
0: one thing I always tell them is some I can't remember who told me, but someone told me when I had my my kid it was like, get ready for long days and short years. And I think there's a lot in that, right? That sort of gets at the joy, but the hardship thing, but um like Like I'm one of these people. I wish I'd had a lot more kids, right? And I had kids earlier and all that kind of stuff. And I think that like, that's something you can't tell. It's very difficult to tell people that because of the vampire problem thing, you have to understand that, that it's just that, that you're not going to know for sure until you experience it. But I, I don't think I haven't looked at these numbers. I don't think it was in yours. There aren't a lot of women who actually say, I wish I had had fewer kids. I mean,
1: uh, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I didn't. I don't think we've done a lot of surveys on that. I haven't. I haven't looked at them actually.
0: Yeah, there's also a huge social desirability bias problem. I mean, who's going to tell a pollster that? <laughs>
1: Anecdotally, again, like, like I do. I I know people who have said that. Um, you know, I think it's it's probably not as uncommon as as we might think. Yeah, I mean, like,
0: but the, I mean, they might regret having Todd because he's a pill. <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> Anyway, so I I have to, I have to start pinging your libertarian sensibilities. Now there's another argument that, um, uh, we're having fewer kids because people are having less sex. And that's one of the reasons why there's less child, uh, the teenage pregnancy, right? Is, uh, some of it is better contraception, uh, but some of it is just, um, less sex. And there's also less, um, there's, there's less dating, there's less, like, it's funny. So Yuval Levin wrote a great piece for us a while back about how, like, the patho- quote-unquote pathologies of kids today are almost the polar opposite of the pathologies of kids from the 50s to the 70s. It used to be that the problem with kids was they're too violent, they were too reckless, they're having premarital sex all the time, they were doing too many drugs, and now it's they won't get off the friggin' couch, and they're watching too much porn, which makes them either less interested or less interesting to women who don't want to date boys who think every th- that 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 porn is realistic in some way um which i do think is a real issue what you do again what you do about it is complicated but I think it's a real problem porn proliferation and um and so you know there's this concern that we're kind of turning Japanese right because there's this whole Japanese culture where like celibacy is like a big thing now and they have these words for like men who has something to do with like cows who just um, they all face the same direction and chew cud. There's some met- visual metaphor in it. I can't remember. But what do you what do you think about that? That that people are getting kind of sick with freedom.
1: I think that it's it's a bit of a moral panic. I don't think anything like in the evidence bears that out. And first of all, I think it's really weird that we spent like decades upon decades being like, oh my god, you know, people have too many sexual partners, teens are having too much sex, and then there's like this slight reversal, which it's not that you know, like it it has gone down. I think I just had to debate someone about a lot of these topics, so I so I was just doing a lot of research on it, and it's like um, compared to the '90s, I think we've got teens have like 15 percent of less teens have lost their virginity by the time they turned 18, but it's something like 45 percent have lost their virginity by 18 now, as opposed to like you know it was 60 percent or something, you know. So it's not like like nobody is, and and you know again, arguably there's nothing wrong with teens not losing their virginity until they're until they're adults, you know. Um, when it comes to millennials, there something like millennials have less are less promiscuous than the past, which again is like funny because we also have this freak out about hookup culture and all of that. But then millennials have fewer sexual partners than boomers or Gen X did. But again, it's something like the average millennial, like when you take men and women together, will have like six sexual partners, which again is not, it's not nothing. It's not like they're, you know, millennials are out here being celibate. So I think people just tend to catastrophize a lot of these these trends because I don't know, there's, there's a need to say that, you know, whatever is happening now is... Is bad, and to, to find you know things that are, technology can be blamed for, and all of that. And I just don't think that the evidence necessarily um, bears that out. That that we're really at this point where we should be panicking about the amount of sex people are having just because they're they're having a little bit less sex, perhaps, or or fewer partners than before. And and you know there is a lot of people. You know everyone has their their pet reasons, like you know porn or social media or screen time or all these things, and like. I'm not saying that in, in you know, some small percentage of cases or some percentage of cases that that these that all of these things don't play some role. But I don't there there's not strong data suggesting that any one of these things is is the explanation. Um there, there was a recent study at, at Rutgers University about um the decline of drinking, uh binge drinking being a big part of why I think it was like eighteen to twenty-four year olds are having less sex. So some of these things are really positive explanations, like the fact that people are just having like Less like very drunken hookups is is you know again a good thing i I don't think that there's strong evidence that we can say that like this is happening for for these bad reasons where we're all just gonna like retreat into to virtual worlds and and not have any sort of real life social interaction
0: yeah i mean i'm 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 less uh, rosy about it than you are, but again, much like the the fertility thing, I'm very open to the fact that. I don't know what we're supposed to do about it. Right. I mean, like again, and I'm not saying I I am not arguing for sort of pure libertarian laissez faire and not doing anything about it, but like, and I'm sure we probably disagree on this, but like, I'm, I'm very open to the idea of just saying there's an age cutoff for social media until you're 18. You can't have an account. I, I think that's a perfectly first amendment consistent. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying I'm all in for it, but I'm very sympathetic to it. And I I think it's a reasonable thing to talk about because I don't think at the end of the day, social media, even though there is moral panic stuff going on, you can filter out, you can dial back the moral panic, um, from 11 to seven and on a zero to 10 scale and still say some of the social media stuff is bad for kids, bad for teenagers, bad for particularly for girls. Um, I saw it in my own daughter, you know, just like the world they live in. There's, there's one thing, You know, the way I always put it is like when I was going to high school, lots of kids weren't invited to parties. It happened. That's life, right? It's one thing to not be invited to a party. And then you find out about it Monday morning when everyone talks about how great the party was. It's another thing to see the party happening in real time on your phone while you're not invited to it. And there's some psychological burdens that come with that stuff and and anxieties that come with that stuff. And it's, so I'm open to, to that kind of thing but I don't think it's a panacea. I don't think it solves everything. And, um, and I guess where I, I push back on the libertarian part about it is, is like, just because something is hard and difficult and more complicated than simplistic politicians want to make it to seem doesn't mean it's not a problem. And there's a real tendency going way back with libertarians to think that the, the fruits of all freedom are great and there's no, There's no vantage point from outside of the free activities of free people to say some people made bad choices. And that's where my conservatism comes out is like, I'm perfectly happy making the declaration that some people made better choices than other people did. Doesn't mean we should prohibit people from making bad choices, but part of a society is about stigma, shame, culture, persuasion, argument. And if you take a position that there are no bad choices, then you're basically taking a position that there are no good choices.
1: The thing with just a lot of these these solutions though that you mentioned is that even even if you come at it from an idea, from from the premise that, you know, the government needs to be making sure that teens are having more sex, which again, it's a weird premise. Uh,
0: but, <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I totally agree with <laughs> but, that. Um,
1: you know, or, or, but, you know, whatever these, these things are, I just think there's there's very little to suggest that these things would actually work and there are trade-offs like again like with the with the children and social media if you're going to ban anyone under 18 from being on social media right um, if even if we put aside like libertarian philosophical objections to that um, you know it's it's going to still be easy for, for a lot of teams to gain the system, one. And another, it's going to require that everybody submit proof of their real identity to join every single website. And it's going to create huge privacy concerns. It's going to have, you know, everyone's going to be attached to their real identities on things. You're going to open people up to all sorts of scams and hackers. You're going to open people up to a lot more, you know, the government having that data, um, and not to mention the, the corporations, which, you know, we got a lot of worry about TikTok and things right now, you know. So you're just, you're opening... Um, you know, you're just opening up a big can of privacy concerns there too. So we got, you know, we've got a lot of trade-offs for something that may or may not even work in order to keep teens off social media. And if it does keep some percentage of teens off social media, even smaller chance that it's actually going to solve this, you know, these, these ground social problems that we, that we think that we've just sort of suspect that it might be causing. Um, And especially when it comes to things like, like porn, you know, um, even if, even if the U.S. somehow, you know, just like you know, suspended the First Amendment, banned all porn. I mean, unless you're going to somehow crack down around the world on on websites, you know, it's just it's not going to make a difference. So a lot of these things, it's like we'd be doing these big trade-offs either in terms of like betraying our constitutional principles, betraying our civil liberties, ruining people's privacy in order for what are negligible, if, if any, you know, effects. I think a lot of times. Um, so, so I'm not even going to bother making a libertarian philosophical argument. I just think that practically a lot of these things don't work as well.
0: Um, yeah, look, I, I, I get the libertarian arguments, all that kind of stuff. I, my, I, and, I, and I get that it's hard. But this is, there's a, there's a philosophical, logical distinction mm-hmm. between arguing that, and I, it, I agree entirely there are trade-offs tire. Um, and, uh, I think the govern is to choose that, you know, the, the, the very essence of understanding, um, how policy is made is that a, all, well, virtually all policies will create some winners and losers. Um, and including extreme libertarian policies, right? I mean, like total freedom is going to benefit people with higher levels of social capital, cognitive capital, intellectual capital, financial capital, than it will um, people without all of those things. And um, so there, there are choices involved in everything. and um, um, But the existence of trade-offs um, isn't an argument per se against leaning one way or another on those trade-offs. And so I agree entirely that like the 18 year old age limit thing would be imperfect and people will get around it just the way that people got around buying booze under the age of 18 or 21, just as the way people got around the the ban on buying cigarettes. And when I say people, I mean me, um, you know, like I, I get it. Like, like, like there's going to be spillage breakage and all sorts of things at the margins and all these things. But As I was saying earlier, a society that that makes it easier for parents to raise healthy kids um, is better than a society that makes it harder to raise healthy kids.
1: Yeah, I think I feel a lot about this, like the same way I do about the fertility stuff, too, though, which is just like, okay, how do we make it easier for parents to raise healthy kids and, and people to become healthy adults in a world with social media as opposed to this, you know, pretending that we can just sort of turn back the clock and, and you know, get rid of it or, or keep kids off of it entirely until they're 18 or or pretending that there's no benefits to social media because I think that there are a lot of benefits to, to social media too. I think that there's obviously there's trade-offs here too um, in terms of good for, you know, for, for many children um, or, or teenagers at least, you know, being on social media. So I think, you know, we should be focusing on if, if, if our concern is, you know, teenage girl's body image and like let's work on that. If our concern, like, Pinpoint what our actually concerns are with social media and teenagers and then work on those things as opposed to thinking that we should, you know, somehow do this magical thing where we'll be able to turn back the clock on social media. So I guess a lot like how I feel about fertility rates. Like, we've got to accept that we're not going to be able to drastically raise fertility rates through like government fiat unless we're going to go total authoritarian. So let's figure out what we're concerned with and, and, you know, deal with those problems as they come as opposed to sort of this, this pie in the sky idea.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. In so far as like, I think triage is a really important concept, right? You 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 fix the problem. You, you have the low hanging fruit. You address problems that are addressable, and then the problems that aren't fixable, you don't try to fix because you know I mean like and 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 you instead you try to deal with the the worst symptoms of it as best you can, right? But my only point is is that. And I, I really, like this. Is, I keep getting asked by listeners because they like it when I get into conversations with libertarians and all this kind of stuff. And
1: is it because they hate us? Because everyone loves to see people fight with libertarians, and, and mostly it's because they hate us. <laughs> I,
0: I don't know. I mean, I, I, I go, I, and I, I do have an actual question. I should have tipped you up before we started this about libertarianism these days. But um, one of the things. I, because I've become so much more libertarian over the last 20 years. Right. And I've I've noticed. And so part of my problem is, is that while I still enjoy just for the fun of it, giving Nick Gillespie and Catherine crap, right. Well,
1: giving Nick Gillespie crap is, yeah, it's just fun. He invites it. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, And, um, and Ron Bailey is one of my closest friends. Right. So I mean, like I, I, I've been doing this for a long time, but one of the things I really resent about arguing with libertarians is it puts me in the sort of, Paternalistic, finger waggy. There's a role for the state to do X, Y, or Z kind of position. When most of the time, I'm the guy making the opposite <laughs> argument, right? Because you guys are to my libertarian and extreme, and so it forces me to say, well, you know, you know, at the margins, if the state can make things better by doing this versus <laughs> that, then why not? And that it's, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> but um, I'm a big believer, and so like I, the reason I brought that up is because I, I hate, I hate with a blinding passion. People who talk about the president or the government as if it's the parents of the one great national family, right? I'm a big Hayekian guy on this microcosm versus macrocosm. You cannot have the, this, the 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 state can't love you. All Americans aren't part of my family. The people who are part of my family are part of this thing called my family, and then I have this slightly larger circle around that called my close friends. And that's about it. And like the way I deal with strangers and family is going to be the day, the way I deal with family and and friends is going to be different than the way I deal with strangers. Yada, yada. yada. I, I, I stipulate all that stuff. At the same time, there's a certain amount of hypocrisy that comes into a lot of these arguments where both libertarians and libertines raise their own kids in fairly bourgeois ways and then say it is outrageous for the state to sort of put its thumb on its scale towards bourgeois values when it comes to rewarding certain behaviors over other behaviors. And I'm just in favor of bourgeoisism. I think, like, arguments. See, I, arguments don't
1: see the, I don't see the hypocrisy there, though. Well,
0: I, because if you actually think that this set of values, this set of behaviors, this set of expectations and practices, will lead to the best outcomes for your own kid, you should have a little more. This is my view. I'm not trying to lecture you, but this is my position on it. Then if you believe that, then when it comes to things like schools, community standards, and all these kinds of things, you should make it absent some really compelling contrary argument easier for other people to raise their kids that way. And I'll just See, give you a really tiny but, example. Hold on, I I'll give you think, one tiny okay. example you tell me why I'm wrong, okay? Just talking with a friend of mine about this yesterday. There is this argument in uh, certain quarters of sort of the uh, black identity politics um, world that says that punctuality is a white value. And it comes up in these stupid PowerPoint presentations that nobody reads about DEI or whatever. Um, and that uh, you shouldn't be, have, you shouldn't impose these expectations on people from different cultures and whatnot. My own view is that punctuality is a sign of respect for other people. You know, and I'm not saying I'm always on time, but I try to be right. I worry about it. And that I raise my kid to say, look, if you have an appointment, if you're going to do a meeting, if you're going to do an interview, show up on time, you know, right? Because it's a sign of respect for the person that you're meeting with. It is a sign of professionalism. It is a It is one of these small ingredients for success. I kind of think there's nothing wrong and everything right with a school, a public school, taking that very small example of bourgeois values and doing what it can to, not coercively, not with rulers on knuckles, impose that on kids as a matter of civilizing young children towards certain expectations in life because it's good for them. What's wrong with that?
1: Well, I mean, if, if public schools are going to exist, and and I know that, you know, many libertarians would argue that they would, shouldn't, but if they are going to exist, they obviously have to make various or a ton of, of value calls like that. And so I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with them saying that, you know, punctuality is, is important. They're going to have to make calls about what, what they teach students. And so they're necessarily going to have to say some values are, 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 better than others. And I think that's fine. Um, I would just say to, to, to your point that, you know, libertarians sometimes preach a thing, but don't want it to be, you know, a mandate or at least don't want it to be, or, you know, have the government encourage it. I think it, it comes down to, to two things. Like the first one is just humility. Like the idea that even though I think that such and such might be the best way to raise my children or might be the best way to eat or the best way to, uh, Take care of, you know, people or, or, just whatever. Um, you know, I, I accept that I am not infallible and that I might be wrong and that my ideas might not be actually the best for all people. And therefore, I don't think that I should have the ability to, you know, put them into law and, and make everyone follow them because other people have their own ideas about what is best. And, you know, I'm, I'm allowing the possibility that they could also have some truth in them. And then the second would just be unintended consequences. Like, even if I think that this might be the best thing I can go out there and promote it in terms like, you know, in, in in the world without saying that the government should be promoting it because when the government gets involved, they're often, you know, have unintended consequences.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, 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 I think I'm pretty clear about my priors. I'm more on the Berkey and Hayekian side of these questions. And I think that there are a lot of like the Burkean arguments, argument is a lot of, or the Hayekian argument too, is like a lot of these, cultural norms, practices, traditions have endured over time because they have, they're the product of trial and error and that there's actual deep wisdom embedded in them. Um, but just to be clear, I wasn't saying that the problem with libertarians is they preach what they don't want the government to do. Um, my problem is, is they don't to borrow a phrase from Charles Murray is they, they don't preach at all what they practice in private right is that like the the divorce rate you know the 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 divorce problem the out of wedlock birth problem all of these things whether you think they're problems or not right but society a lot of people in society thought they were problems basically solved 20 years ago 30 years ago for the upper quintile right wealthy people follow the success sequence more or less they um they get married, they, they, they get educated as much as they can, then they get married, then they have kids. And they expect that from their kids and um, they inculcate those values in their kids. And, and they get all the richer because of it. You know, There's all the assortive of mating thing and all that kind of stuff. And yet in a lot of elite circles, particularly left liberal um, circles, The last thing you're allowed to do is sort of say that these old-fashioned bourgeois values about like, um, uh, personal responsibility and hard work ethic and get as much education as you can and yada yada yada. You're not supposed to preach those things, Um, even though all of these people practice them and believe they are what is best for their own kids. And I don't think they believe that what is best for their own kids in some sort of, you know, weird like Hasidic Jew. Like they also believe that the boys should have really long sideburns kind of view. I mean, this is like more of a fundamental, they believe there's social science behind it. They believe There's like accumulated wisdom behind it. They just don't have the balls to sort of say to other people, you should sort of follow these practices too.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I'll just say, I don't think, I've never encountered libertarians having problems telling people how they think they should live, as long as the government (laughs) isn't involved.
0: Fair, fair. Although you have a special, you have a special subset of libertarians, but yes, that's fair. That's fair. Um, Fair.
1: You know, there's a potential that that's changing. There's, or, or maybe I don't know. There's, there's always a debate within libertarianism, you know, about about what libertarianism should have to say about issues that aren't strictly government policy. I think there's, it's a big point of contention and, and there's lots of ideas on all sides and you know there's a lot of people that do argue that libertarians have especially a an um, obligation to speak out about that stuff because if we don't want the government to step in then we need to be willing to like take strong stances in in the, in the social and cultural world so um but yeah i know that there's also people who are like you know we shouldn't say anything about this i think it's i think it's di- a divide among libertarians
0: yeah i mean th- th- this is the the going back 25 years now the, the the thing about libertarians that libertarians say less than they used to but there used to be this this myth that there's um unanimity among libertarians that all you libertarians see oh, the world God. this way I mean, and, then, no. <laughs> and it's i mean second only to like i don't know jews are there a more contentious, bickering bunch yeah. of people than libertarians? Yeah, it's it's pretty. It's funny when people are like libertarian.
1: I'm like, oh my god, which libertarians are you talking about? Because
0: so I I I brilliantly engineered this to the segue, and I, again, I don't know if you specialize in this stuff. You're not you're not Brian Doherty and all that. But um, what the hell is going on with the Libertarian Party, particularly these state Libertarian parties? God, who, who knows? <laughs> I mean, for listeners who don't know. But the the various state libertarian parties um, and for all I know, you share their views on foreign policy. That's fine. Right. But you don't share their views. It seems to me on how the best way to sell libertarianism is to be an unalloyed prick. Um, And and in the case of some of the sort of von Mises kind of crowd, which is really a slander against von, the actual man, um, have kind of taken over parts of the libertarian party the actual national party and these guys have a deep sort of like Ron Paul was among the less racist (laughs) of these, of these kinds of libertarians and like libertarians for racism, libertarians for segregationism, libertarians for slavery is so oxymoronic to me. Um, and yet I don't get it. Like what, like, is there, do you have a theory of it? Like when people ask you about it, like in the elevator, what do you say?
1: I mean, it's, it's very upsetting. I think it's, it's a small, it's a small percentage of, of people with libertarian views in general, right? Like the, uh, you know, not all libertarians are part of the libertarian party by far. I mean, many, many more aren't. Um, not all members of the libertarian party are part of the Mises caucus and not all members of the Mises caucus are the worst of these, um, you know, just Twitter accounts or, or people out there advocating for it. But the people that are the loudest are, are the worst basically. Um, and yeah, like you said, like, I mean, they just espouse some truly vile views on just about any topic you can think of. I mean, just just views that are offensive, views that are completely antithetical to libertarianism. Um, like you mentioned, foreign policy, you know, like there's a lot about how, you know, Putin is right to be invading Ukraine and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's just off the walls on any era you look at. And um, it's upsetting because you know, even though I can say all that about libertarians and how they don't speak for, you know, the vast majority, it's that, you know, it's these people run the Libertarian National you know Party Committee um, Twitter account now. So it's like they are out there as very high visibility libertarians and people see this stuff and they think that this is I mean, there's been so much division even within the party with so many um People leaving, like they, their, their donations are way down. Their their membership is down. A lot of the their chapters, state chapters, have splintered or broken up or are you know just having major issues because of it. So it's it's not widespread. But but what happened was just in short, you know, like a, a small group of people who wanted to change the direction of the Libertarian Party and and sort of make it um, more more socially conservative, more sort of Trumpian. Um, and, and more edge lordy is, you know, like one of the things, you know, they, they believe that the best strategy is to sort of appeal to, uh, people who, who are like, you know, whose biggest issue is like fighting, fighting the woke mobs online. Um, they think that that'll spread the party. And so that's the sort of strategy that they've gone with. And because of, um, the way that the Libertarian Party is structured is, it was pretty easy for a lot of them to become delegates to the state convention and to get there and to vote their people into power. and so. Um, that's that's what we got. I was. I'll just say I was. You know, I I just started getting involved with the Libertarian Party. I was always like, I'm a small Libertarian. I don't really care about electoral politics. And then, um, you know, starting, uh, 2019, 2020, I started you know thinking more that we we did need you know our own party. And I I liked where the party had been going, even though it was you know far from perfect. And I became a member. I even, um, I emceed their gala last year at the convention. Like I was all like, I'm, you know, getting involved in the LP and, and I stopped then very quickly after that convention, because that's when the Mises caucus took over. And for a few months I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to give this a try. Like they, they maybe you're, you know, have a strategy online that I don't necessarily love, but it's, you know, let's see where this is going. And it's just, it's been like an unmitigated disaster.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's like with everything with libertarians it's more intense and 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 louder than what's going on with republicans but it's a very similar phenomenon with what's going on with the republicans right i mean um and kind of with the
1: left too if you i mean different different factions but like with their extreme elements sort of a uh, fighting for messaging control and things like that
0: yeah i mean i i just wrote my la times column about this about how i think the republican Like, as as I'm sure, you know, from the comment section at Reason, there's a certain Gresham's law of comment sections where the nastiest posters crowd out the most decent ones until the decent ones are like, it's not worth it for me to even hang out here anymore. And I hate to say it, it's it's an argument for content moderation, but uh, which is very anti-libertarian. But it seems to me, at least metaphorically, if not literally, that's a problem with a lot of our institutions is that the sort of comment section types are taking over these institutions, like the Republican party at the state level in lots of places is being taken over by the sort of election denier QAnon kind of people. And it chases out the normals and then makes it easier for the place to become even more abnormal. Sort of like Kerry Lake telling, you know, if anybody in this room voted for John McCain, get the hell out. It was like, like you'd rather have a pure comment section where you can talk about, your craziness freely than actually have to deal with people who share a lot of your values, but don't want to hear that stuff. And I think that that's, it's a trend just across the sort of the political culture and it's, it's, I don't know what you do about it, but, um, um, but it's just a huge problem. And it's, it's, it's just, it's particularly vexatious to me for the libertarian party because like libertarianism is supposed to be the thing that's really easy to sell to young people. Right. And like, like young people are sort of normally pretty libertarian at heart. And um, everyone goes through their libertarian phase in college kind of thing. And to turn libertarianism into this sort of pro-Putin, you know, kind of at least atmospherically racist, sometimes literally racist, nasty crap, it's like, like you're not going to scare those kids into being decent social conservatives. What you're going to do is you're going to scare those kids into being crazy progressive left wingers. Right, and that's that doesn't help anybody. Right. it's just it's just weird.
1: I mean, yeah, libertarians for for a party that uh, you know uh, or for a philosophy that ostensibly is all about like equal rights and tolerance, it's just so weird some of the things they've chosen to take a stance on. You know, and and just. Like you said, like, it's basically anything that they think will, you know, rot, will own the libs, you know? So it's like, oh, we're not going to bother even pretending to care about, you know, the very real, like, say, abuses by police because that's an issue that is associated with the left and Black Lives Matter and we're against them. So therefore, then suddenly, you know, they're, uh, you know, saying that anything that, you know, the defense is like defending police brutality or sort of, you know, defending not just, Con, you know defending the rights of, of governments to ban drag queens from the public square not just from children in general because it's just like oh that's a deviant lifestyle and, and we've chosen that position because the left is defending drag queens you know so it's just it's pure um, politics of, of, of resentment or, or grievance you know
0: alright Elizabeth Nolan Brown we did not talk one bit about legalizing heroin so hey! I consider this a win <laughs> um, please say hello to all my friends over there and thank you again for doing
1: this yeah thank you for having me
0: Okay, so uh Elizabeth Nolan Brown has left the studio. Uh thanks again to her. Thank you to her um uh Libertarian Overlords for letting her come on. Um, because they run a tight ship over there. And um and thank you all for listening. I have more thoughts on all of these things. I think at least directionally you can see where I disagreed, but like I didn't want to get into what I didn't want to get into. Um, and we didn't even forget to talk about legalizing heroin. You know, uh, one of Elizabeth's big things is, is, um, uh, deregulating sex work, which I don't agree with. Um, but, uh, I thought it was lovely to talk to her. I really do recommend the piece. It's worth reading. Um, uh, friend of the remnant, uh, Lyman stone had some criticisms of it. Um, but I think. I think my point about what the takeaway from the piece stands, regardless of Lyman's criticisms, because I've heard Lyman make the same point. Tweaking fertility rates is hard. It's really hard. And what successes you get tend to be short lived because they just simply move up desired births to a little earlier rather than get people to have, uh, um, that additional child at the margin beyond what they planned on doing. Um, and, uh, that doesn't mean it's not worth the state doing some of this stuff. I just, I, I'm wacky and weird in that I think if the state's going to try and do some of this stuff, uh, there should be some expectation that it will work. Um, and it's very hard to see how any program of doing this is replicable or, um, or, um, efficacious at scale. So beyond that, um, I'm sure we can talk about this more and I really do got to get Lyman back on here anyway. Uh, But thanks for listening and I will see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast.